Oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> so I'll probably cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, minus points. <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our best friends who can beat people up for us, and we go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert, and I am notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I'm safely behind the judges' table, letting others battle it out instead. Our contestants this week are Adam Amawala and Kyle Banduho. Today's mysteries are from Encyclopedia Brown. Adam will be playing for the Black Women's Health Imperative. Kyle will be playing for Blessings in a Backpack, and without further ado, let's put the pedal to the metal and meet our guests, Adam and Kyle. How's it going? Great. It's all right, man. How are you? You know, all things considered, things are good. I don't know. I feel like it's the the little victories that we can get in 2020 where, you know, a month ago we were told murder hornets were going to come and I haven't heard of any uh, murder hornet sightings. So, you know, just small victories that we can take. Yeah, that's a W. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta take the wins where you can get them. I also, and Kyle, I know this will be partial to you. I feel like Murder Hornets is prime for an independent minor league baseball team to use the name of starting when the season comes back <laughs> next year. I feel like that's 100% going to happen because this year was going to be the first year of the both the cannonballers, but more importantly, the trash pandas. Gosh. And Murder Hornet seems like the natural progression to trash pandas. <laughs> I mean, if we can have the Staten Island pizza rats, I think we can have a Murder Hornets minor league baseball team, at least independent leagues. Right. I feel like we could make this happen for sure. <laughs> But enough about 2020 being terrible. Let's get to know the two of you in terms of your experience with mystery novels. Have either of you read any of these growing up? Were you big into things like Encyclopedia Brown, Scooby-Doo, Nancy Drew, etc.? I weirdly read, I've read one Encyclopedia Brown book. I had one and it was actually the one you did, I believe on the first episode of Meddling Adults, which is interesting. Huge Scooby-Doo fan growing up. I now, I have a six-year-old who's now getting into Scooby-Doo. Yes. I would recommend no one see Scoob. Don't (laughs) spend the money. Don't do it to yourself. But uh, the old school Scooby-Doo, there's a lot of them on Netflix. They all still hit. So that's, that's good news for anyone who either has kids or just wants to rediscover their childhood. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was a big Scooby-Doo guy growing up. My sister was the main mystery novel reader, but I remember reading a lot of, I think they were called the Boxcar Children. Does that ring any bells for anybody? Oh, yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I seem to remember it being like a ragtag group of youths (laughs) solving mysteries, but it was like more geared towards boys. I don't know if that's true at all. That's just my memory of it. That sounds about right. I feel like the mystery novel era back in the day was we have to make sure that we write these books appealing to either boys or girls because how dare we make books (laughs) that could appeal to both. But I do feel like Encyclopedia Brown is the most neutral of all of them, especially as I'm starting to get more and more deep into the series. This, for example, these mysteries for this episode come from books eight and nine. And Sally Kimball, his partner who is a girl that beats people up, she plays a much more significant role as the books go on. So I'm I'm very excited that Encyclopedia Brown continues to become the true hero and the book series that we all need and deserve right now. 
progress. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to give a clarification note of something that I have messed up the entire first season of Meddling Adults is that I have been saying that he lives in Idaville, Indiana. Now, Idaville, Indiana is a real town that exists in the world. But a few listeners have pointed out to me that the author of Encyclopedia Brown, Mr. Sobel, says that he envisioned Idaville to be a fictional town in Florida. Which clarifies why they go to the beach so often in these books, which I didn't think made any sense when they were in the middle of Indiana. I gotta say, the Idaville murder hornets playing in the Florida State League would hit really well. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just picturing their their uniforms looking like the Cincinnati Bengals helmets, just like all kinds of colors all over the place. <laughs> would love to see it. Oh, man, it sounds absolutely fantastic. So here's how the game is going to work. I will be recapping four quick mysteries from the esteemed children's novel series Encyclopedia Brown. Neither of you have read or seen these mysteries ahead of time. I'll lay out all the clues. I'll ask for your accusations, and each correct guess will earn you points, but... There's also bonus points at stake. If your guess matches my incorrect guess, I will give you a Misery Loves Company bonus point. And if you say anything that's particularly funny, you throw a good jab, anything that tickles my fancy, I'll throw around a bonus point because much like time, nothing matters anymore. So who cares? Everything's in flux. Nothing is real. I'm counting on those bonus points. Oh yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> appreciate the whose line is it anyway mantra of uh, points mean nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in this, the points somewhat matter, but the way in which we arrive at the points is complete fabrication. I mean, full confession, I've, I'm have i a big meddling adults fan, so I'm Ooh. very excited to be doing this. And I've listened to, I, I believe, every episode except one, which I think bodes well in my favor. But at the same time, I think I've done very poorly on guessing the actual mystery <laughs> in every single one, which does not work in my favor. Real mixed bag here for me. There's really no way to prepare. I think the only thing we can do at this point is get into our first mystery of the episode, and that is the case of the $2 bill. Mm, okay. Sumner Finkelfooter, which is a name, <laughs> Sumner Finkelfooter steps up into the Brown Detective Agency and screams, down with $1 bills. Now, Encyclopedia Brown, who has continued to establish himself as just the chillest dude, says, gee, Sumner, what have they ever done to you? And Sumner says, nothing. It's what they've done to Thomas Jefferson that makes me sore. Arguably my favorite character in Hamilton. <laughs> I know these books are written in the 60s and 70s, so I don't think it was very much of the time to realize that Thomas Jefferson, not a great guy, owned like a lot of slaves. And uh, a quick Google shows you that he's not necessarily the best person. Much better character in Hamilton than he was in real life. I just, I would like to clarify that. He's much better <laughs> as David Diggs. Yes, I would I would totally agree. And uh, I, I gotta say, I'm not on board with Sumner Finkelfooter being a TJ apologist. I'm not here for it. No. <laughs> we can't stand for it. He goes on to say, they've made him the forgotten man. Everyone knows whose picture is on the $1 bill, George Washington's. But how many people know who's on the $2 bill? And then Encyclopedia Brown, because he's so smart and can't help it, whispers, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> Just because he can't leave a rhetorical question that he knows the answer to unanswered. I love him. Sumner's plan is that he wants to write to every single congressman in Washington, D.C. about the issue because he thinks more $2 bills should be printed since you can't really buy anything with a dollar anymore. 
an encyclopedia brown says yeah that makes sense maybe i should raise my fee and sumner goes not yet i <laughs> i want to pay you to do this and you can raise the fee afterwards <laughs> pretty quick thinking by sumner <laughs> encyclopedia brown clearly a capitalist i mean he really is undercharging them even back in 1965 a quarter is what he charges for the cases and that's not enough even in 65 i don't know what can you buy for a quarter Gum? Oh, don't worry. I'm going to my favorite website, the uh, the United States Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And apparently, 25 cents in 1965 is like $2.04 today. It's nothing. Man, Encyclopedia is a bargain, without a doubt. He needs to really charge people what he's worth. He needs to not just be doing his friends' favors and stuff. Oh, if you solve this mystery, it'll be great exposure for you. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a ton of industry there. (laughs) You could get sponsored after the fact, you know? Maybe it would open some doors for you. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm trying to be sympathetic to the fact that this was written a long time ago, but I I would be lying if I told you I wasn't getting a real all bills matter vibe from Sumner. I can think of a few congressmen who would go all in on uh, TJ not getting the respect he deserves with the $2 bill. And any single congressman I have in mind is not someone I would vote for. And I'm going to leave it there. I don't know the history of money being minted in America, but it feels like the creation of the $2 bill was just absolutely silly and never should have happened. Having two single dollars is not hard. Certainly it must cost more to have all of the production to make a $2 bill and everything, rather than just make twice as many $1 bills. I don't get it. Could be worse, though. You could be in Canada where they have $2 coins. Right. Yeah. When I lived in France briefly, they have one euro and two euro coins, I believe. And you just have to carry lots of coins, which makes sense in terms of coins last longer and stuff. But when you're going to a bar and it feels like you are at a Chuck E. Cheese or a Dave & Buster's or something, (laughs) (laughs) it's not a great feeling. I had to pay for something in cash yesterday, and it was a truly strange experience. It was like an experience from a forgotten age. It was very, (laughs) very weird, like making exact change. My most common use of cash now is the laundry room in my apartment in New York. It's a card-operated thing, but you have to load up your card with cash, and the machine only takes 5, 10s, and 20s. So it's not even enough for me to have $1 bills. I have to specifically have 5, 10s, and 20s, which is just, I don't see why I have to do all of this. I have other friends with laundry rooms where you can, like, recharge with an app, or put your credit card into a machine. The $2 bill getting slighted. (laughs) (laughs) Cut out the damn middleman. What are we doing here? You have to put cash into a machine to get it on. It's like using a phone card. Oh, my goodness. You remember phone cards? Unfortunately, yes. Been watching a lot of Sopranos lately, and that that was a a plot. (laughs) (laughs) I also remember having to specifically tailor text messages in the 90s so that they would be under 160 characters or whatever, so that I wouldn't get charged 20 cents for a text instead of 10 cents for a text. And you'd get really creative with abbreviating words when you were trying to save 10 cents as a 14-year-old boy. It was good practice for Twitter. Pretty much, yeah. It is, it is. The T9 generation is better at cramming stuff into 280 characters than the than the Gen Zers. <laughs> <laughs> they never had to know. They never even had to deal with a 140-character Twitter. Oh, the days. Okay, anyway, Encyclopedia Brown. So Encyclopedia Brown 
returns the 25 cents back to Sumner and says, no charge, I was going to the library today anyway. Let's go there and look up the names and the addresses of the congressmen. Terrible businessman. (laughs) He's just trying to help people in need. He's got a good heart. So they go to the library and they ask the librarian for the book that has all of the congressmen in it. And that librarian reveals that Joe Munson, another kid in town, has it. Sumner is very upset because he knows that Joe is a fan of Ulysses S. Grant. And Sumner was talking to him earlier about the $2 bill situation. And Joe said, oh, I like Ulysses S. Grant a lot. And I don't think him being on the $50 bill is fair. I'm going to write to Congress. Great idea, Sumner. So he took the book that Sumner needs. So Joe is on the right side of history compared to Sumner. I guess, though I did Google in a very educated manner, was Ulysses S. Grant a bad person? And from course Googling, it appears that he wasn't necessarily a bad dude. He was just an incompetent president. Could be worse. We've had both presidents that are incompetent and bad dudes, so (laughs) one and not the other isn't the worst. Yes. Also, talking about things to get nostalgic about, remember a time where somebody just had the information in their possession? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can't go online and find out where the congressmen live. This one person has that information, and until you retrieve it from them, you are getting nowhere with your mission. Librarians were crazy powerful for a very long (laughs) amount of time. They were drunk with that Dewey Decimal System power. (laughs) (laughs) So Encyclopedia says, oh, you're just going to have to wait until he finishes using the book. And Sumner says, no, I'll fix him. I'll give him the Sumner stare. And then the narrator in Encyclopedia Brown explained that Sumner has this death stare that I guess is the intimidating version of puppy dog eyes, where he just sits across the table from Joe and then just stares at him with a thousand-yard stare until he finishes using the book. Nothing creepy about that. Not at all. Sumner seems like a normal person. So it's like Lupita Brown kind of laughs this off and goes, oh, what a goober. I'm going to go read some books because I'm at the library. But while he is reading, he hears Sumner yell in anger. And what I love is the narrator says that immediately multiple adults shush Sumner, which I think is a great detail. (laughs) Six-inch voices. (laughs) Libraries haven't changed. Not at all. So Encyclopedia walks over and asks him what's up, and here is what went down. Joe apparently asked Sumner for a $2 bill because he wanted to copy down the serial number in order to prove to Congress that there were more $2 bills in circulation than $50 bills. So Sumner gives him the $2 bill, he goes to get a drink from the water fountain, and when he comes back, Joe is gone. The only thing left on the table is this Members of Congress book, which is opened, and in the page is a handwritten note from Joe that says, I put your $2 bill between pages 157 and 158 of the gray book. Thanks, Joe. So they go over and they talk to the library aide, Clyde, and they ask him about the books that Joe had out because Joe had more than just that one book out. So they ask him, hey, which gray book did Joe have in front of him? We're trying to get something left in the pages out of it. And Clyde goes, oh yeah, he had a gray book, but I don't remember which one it was. Come on, Clyde. for nothing, Clyde. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) We ask so little of you, Clyde. Clyde explains that he walks around the library with a rolly cart and puts all of the books on it, but he leaves open books there until the library is closed, which does seem like a nice deed, so that's why the one book was still left open, but the other ones were gone. So Sumner is absolutely distraught, says there's so many gray books, how are we going to figure it out? And Encyclopedia Brown says, take it easy, I know where to find it. So I turn to you two, how does Encyclopedia Brown know where to find the $2 bill? Hmm, man. 
That Joe Munson is a real trickster, huh? Indeed he is. I have a theory, Kyle. Would you like to go first? No, let, let's hear your theory, because right, right now I'm trying to get the wheels to spin. My theory is that Gray Book is more of a riddle than meets the eye. Mm. I think that the last name of the author of said book is named Gray. Ah, okay. I mean, honestly, that sounds better than anything I could think of. My, <laughs> my only thing was it was it was like in the the a book about the congressman, but it was in like a page with a uh, senator, a congressman that started with G. But frankly, like I'm rooting for Joe Munson here anyway. I don't want <laughs> Sumner to find it. <laughs> okay, well, I regret to inform you that you are both wrong. The key detail is that in the note, he said that he put it between pages 157 and 158. Now, if you grab a book, odd number of pages are on the right and even number pages are on the left. You can't put something between pages 157 and 158. They would be on the back of each other. So Encyclopedia Brown knows that this guy is just straight up lying and he straight up stole the $2 bill. Good for Joe. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Kyle stands for Joe Munson. I'm a Joe Munson guy. I'm, I'm a big Joe Munson fan. People know that about me. <laughs> what the hell? That is so obscure. Hey, welcome to Encyclopedia Brown. Now, maybe it's just because I have now read nine entire books worth of Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. So now I've read 90 Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. But right away, I was like, 157 and 158, you can't put something in between those pages. So I got this one clean, easy. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm impressed. No joke. Like, I'm not just saying this. I was going to say, oh, he probably just took it. But I realized <laughs> like that would be too simple. <laughs> that is the eternal struggle with Encyclopedia Brown mysteries is that they are either way too easy and you think to yourself, no way that's too easy, or they're way over the top and you don't think about it at all. And this one is just, you think he probably just stole it. <laughs> And he did. That rascal Joe Munson. I got to tell you, though, I'm pretty proud of my theory, even though it was completely wrong. It was much better than what I had. <laughs> That's a it's a pretty solid one. Can we customize a murder hornets jersey with Finkelfooter on the back? Is that a thing? We can do? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Gonna have to make some merch. <laughs> that would make it like I would get a jersey of that, like a T-shirt jersey, and I would <laughs> yeah, wear yeah, it yeah. everywhere. <laughs> So at the end of the first round, the score is tied zero to zero, and we go to our next case, the case of the axe handle. Ooh. Okay, I'm interested. So Encyclopedia Brown is going fishing with his fishing gang, and listen to the names of his fishing gang. We've got an incredible roster. You could say some of the starters on the uh, on the Idaville Murder Hornets. We've got <laughs> Pinky Plumber, Herb Stein, who we've met before as the best bicyclist in town, Benny Breslin, Thang's Liverite, and Billy and Jody Turner. <laughs> Billy and Jody Turner had the boring parents in Idaville, I guess. <laughs> Clearly. So Benny is distraught because while they are fishing, they ran out of worms just as the fish really started biting. Don't you hate when that happens? Gosh. Every time. Every <laughs> damn time. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So while he's going on about this, a boy steps up from behind some palm trees. Now this clearly makes Florida make so much more sense than Indiana. No, that sounds like Indiana. That sounds like Indiana. <laughs> they were imports. So he says, quote, I can find you more. I'm Ambrose Vining. I'll be back. And he disappears as suddenly as he had come, according to the narrator. I refuse to believe that Ambrose is real. My theory <laughs> from the start, the entire squad is dead. Ambrose <laughs> is just like someone taking them to the underworld. Ambrose Vining, the weird worm guy, is not a real thing. <laughs> 
He's like, yeah, he's some sort of apparition from the past. Who the hell's named Ambrose? Exactly. So Ambrose comes back with a stick. He comes to an area of soft dirt. He pushes the branch into the ground and starts to rub it. And Benny Breslin goes, this kid is weird, which is very accurate. Very accurate. Not wrong. But then worms start crawling up the branch and the fishing gang is absolutely floored and very curious about what is happening. Ambrose explains that he is a fiddler. To fiddle, you can use a stick or a branch or an axe handle to move around the dirt. It gets the ground to tremble since worms remain in the ground during the daytime. I know the two of you are both very familiar with worm fiddling. I just wanted to explain this in case the audience was not familiar with this concept. It's good for the (laughs) listeners to know. We're all big worm fiddlers. We do it all the time, et cetera, et cetera. We all have our prized axe handles that we use. The uh, Palm Beach worm fiddlers are actually the Idaville murder hornets, arch, arch rival. <laughs> I would be remiss if I, if I did not point out that Pinky Plummer is actually a left-handed reliever for the murder hornets. <laughs> 100%. If Pinky Plummer is not a lefty pitcher, I don't know who is. <laughs> We're going to have an entire new sports league developed by the end of this episode. <laughs> So Ambrose explains that he is competing in the first ever International Worm Fiddling Championship in Glen City. Do you know how much ass you get from that if you win? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, you just can't you can't even count it. It's just so much. It's it's the limit does not exist. Just drowning in it much the way that worms do in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give a bonus point for this this <laughs> run of <laughs> absolutely <laughs> this, worthy. Run, this run of worm jokes. <laughs> so everyone wishes Ambrose good luck, but Encyclopedia Brown does one better, and the narrator even says this as quote doing one better, and takes the bus with Sally to go to Glen City to cheer Ambrose on during the competition. What an absolute bro! What a mensch. <laughs> He's the friend you need, the friend who's going to show up to you. Like, everyone has their weird niche thing in life. Like, for me, it's doing a podcast. It's Encyclopedia Brown is basically going to Ambrose's podcast. He's listening to his weird niche worm podcast. That, that would be the 21st century version of this. Yeah, I mean, Adam is a stand-up comedian. I've done a bunch of improv. We have both done live shows of sorts where it's weird and strange and at an awkward time and in the basement of a used clothing store or whatever. And your friends that actually show up to your thing are the best of friends. I do have a question, though, Mike, if I may. How were they able to obtain tickets to such a sought-after event? Because I, <sighs> from what I've been told, the worm fiddling contest is sold out like two or three months in advance most years. So there was actually someone that lives in Idaville named Frank Stubhub. He actually <laughs> went on to found a company, but at the time he just had a lot of used tickets for sale. I prefer Jimmy SeatGeek. <laughs> Jimmy SeatGeek is pretty good because he gives out discounts for people hosting local radio shows, <laughs> I guess is what... <laughs> would be the podcast equivalent. The worm fiddling contest seems like it would be more of a speakeasy thing, though. Like, you need to go down some back alleys. It's like the uh, the scene in Beer Fest where they're trying to find Beer Fest. It'd be something like that. So Encyclopedia Brown and Sally show up and they see Ambrose seated under the stands. So there are bleachers, at least, at this event. That's what we're rocking with at the worm fiddling contest. They see Ambrose under the stands, nearly in tears. And Encyclopedia Brown goes over and asks him what's up. Ambrose says that he has nothing to fiddle with and the competition is about to start. He explains, I loaned my best axe handle to Justin Rogers yesterday. Justin's mother is in the contest and he said... 
that he would like her to try my axe handle because maybe she would buy one similar to it for the championship. So Ambrose, a very nice guy, but also too trusting. Um, was this relatable in the 60s? Like, did I miss a whole segment of culture that made sense 50 years ago? Because this is so weird. <laughs> the things that I have come across while reading these books, I've learned of a game called Mumble Tea Peg, where you throw a knife into the ground and you have to pick it up with your teeth. I, I guess this is what you did before electricity. Uh, no, electricity was invented. 1960. <laughs> before color television? I don't know, man. <laughs> this is why Pong took off as, as, like, as hard as it did. <laughs> Because it wasn't it wasn't that it was the first video game. It was just competing against absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely. Have you guys seen the worm fiddling challenge on TikTok though? <laughs> oh man, it's really good. Although the weird elbow choreography is very confusing. <laughs> So Justin, who is a 17-year-old boy, comes over and he says, I don't know what to say. And he's apologizing. He says that he leaned the handle against a box in his garage last night. And this morning, he forgot about it. So he reversed the car out of the garage and drove over it while backing out. Encyclopedia Brown says, didn't you hear it crack? And he says, no, I had the car radio going. I just felt the wheels run over something, but I thought it was the garden hose. Honestly, Ambrose, it was an accident. I'm sorry. This is Justin's defense. Ambrose is stunned. He has the two pieces of the handle in his hands, and he sees the print of a car tire shown at the place where the handle broke in half. The competition is about to start. They announce that there are 39 men and 30 women competing, so there are 69 total competitors in this competition. And the announcer says that these competitors are representing 30 states and seven foreign countries. So there are people that flew internationally to Idaville, Florida to compete in a worm fiddling competition. As one does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ambrose is very sad. He says he's done for. He's a loser. There's no way he could win. He doesn't have anything to fiddle with. And Encyclopedia Brown says, look, you got to at least try. Just use the longer part of the broken handle and maybe it'll work. And Amber goes, okay, I guess it's better than just using my hands. So the competition starts. Ambrose loses by just one worm to Justin's mom. And Sally goes, oh man, if only you could prove that Justin broke Ambrose's axe handle on purpose, Encyclopedia. And Encyclopedia Brown simply replies, I can. And that's the end of the mystery. So I turn to the two of you. How did Encyclopedia Brown know that Justin broke the axe handle on purpose? This doesn't have anything to do with the mystery, but is the judging of worm fiddling, is it how many worms? Is it a mass thing? Is... I just have more questions about the contest. So the way that they have it set up is there's just a big patch of dirt and then everyone has a one foot by one foot square that is theirs. And then you put your fiddling device in your square foot of dirt and then whoever gets the most worms at the end of a set time wins. It seems very unfair because what if you're in a particularly wormy part versus someone being in a non-wormy part? But I don't know. I'm not a worm fiddler. You have to take it up with the worm fiddling institution of America, the Wafaya, you know? (laughs) It's like the sequel to Dodgeball. (laughs) Yeah, this is on like ESPN 12. (laughs) Right. I was literally going to say 12. (laughs) Well, as a distinguished wormologist, I can tell you, Kyle, that uh, worm distribution has never been a problem in years prior, nor shall it be in, in years hence. That's good to know. That That's comforting to me because I wouldn't want something that's out of the, the fiddler's control to impact them. That's, that's very reassuring. And Idaville soil is just so ripe for worm fiddling. It's the wormiest, fiddliest dirt in the land. Mike, 
Can you, the, the part about Justin backing out the car, you said he turned on the radio? He said that his radio was on while he was backing out, which is why he didn't hear the crack when he ran over it with the car. And he didn't see it until he was all the way reversed and then out of the front saw, oh no, I've run over something. Hmm. Because Encyclopedia Brown's thought is, wouldn't you have stopped the car once you heard that you had run over something rather than get all the way out of your garage? Hmm. I'm flummoxed. My only thought is it had something to do with the radio. Like he was playing, like, man. I will say this is the hardest mystery that we've done yet. I had no clue what was going on. And how does Curb Stein fit into all this madness? Curb Stein? Oh, Herb Stein. He's the bicyclist. He was just one of the fishing guys. Oh, I thought you said Curb. I was wondering why there were so many <laughs> named <laughs> Curb. <laughs> I think it's a better name. He rides bicycles. Curbs are on roads. It makes more sense. Hmm. Man. If it was leaned up against the box, he wouldn't have been able to run out like it wouldn't have been flat on the ground like it would have just pushed over that's all i've got okay yeah yeah adam how about you my only thought is that he split a different piece of wood intentionally by running it over and his mom is using the original one okay all right Good guesses. That's better. I wish I had done that. <laughs> no, it's okay, Kyle, because you were both wrong. But, Kyle, you get a Misery Loves bonus point because Ooh. that was my guess is that I just felt like leaning against something. It couldn't have broken that way. It wouldn't have broken in half. Like, it felt like, to me, it felt like the whole angle situation was off. But the actual solution is that Encyclopedia Brown, when he looked at the handle, they saw that there was only one tire mark on it. And if there's only one tire mark on it, that means he would have stopped the car once he broke it. So they know that Justin's story isn't true because he said he backed all the way out. So he would have run over it twice. There would have been two tire marks on it. Man. Wow. So clearly what Justin did was he ran over it just so that it would break, then stopped the car, got out of the car and moved it away. That Encyclopedia Brown. I know. Is one clever son of a bitch. <laughs> he really is. This was the most intense. I think this is the hardest one we've ever done. I was completely confused by what the solution could have been here. Yeah, and let me just say that I know Ambrose was concerned about losing the contest, but can we just agree that he was a loser before he even got there? Uh, yeah, you <laughs> don't give your prized fiddling axe handle to someone, not even just to see, but you let them keep it the day before a competition? That's absurd. I just also want to talk about because Ambrose, they did not know Ambrose before he shows up to fiddle mm -hmm. their worms. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Come on. It's a family show. <laughs> but they don't know him beforehand, correct? He just shows up out of nowhere to procure them some bait. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly Encyclopedia is road tripping to watch his weird thing. We stand a dedicated friend, but at the same time, like I'm nothing about this mystery shakes out to me. I'll just <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of foul things afoot. I'm just glad that Benny Breslin got some more worms. True, true. I'm ha I'm happy for him. Happy for the guy. Like Donald J. Sobel was on book nine in the series at this point. He's running out of ideas. He's made 80 Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. He's grasping at straws, and in this case, worms. It's fair. That's fair. Yeah, these that that plot line had a real like office season eight vibe where it's like we just don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> Let's just make Andy horrible. Yeah, that's good. Season eight <laughs> of The Office. <laughs> so we now move on to our third case, the case of the knockout artist. Okay. So Ike Cassidy, who is one of the tigers, the 
group of bad boy ruffians across town. He walks up to Encyclopedia Brown and Sally Kimball in the detective agency saying, quote, I'm quitting the Tigers. I want to hire you, but you'll have to take the quarter from out of my pocket. I can't move my fingers. Now that is some warm wrangling. <laughs> hey <laughs> bonus point. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> That's like old Herbert from Family Guy. <laughs> I got a popsicle in the cellar. <laughs> and I have removed your bonus point because you did a Family Guy impression. <laughs> Damn it. You know all good stand-up comedians do Family Guy impressions, and there's nothing hacky about that at all. <laughs> So, Ike explains that Bugs Meany, the town bully, his cousin, Bearcat Meany, that's his name, Bearcat Meany is spending the weekend with Bugs. Bearcat is only 10, but he's apparently built like a caveman, and Bugs told Ike that he would give him $2 to box a few rounds with Bearcat. Ike says that he busted his hands when he tried to fight Bearcat. He said right off the bat, he tried to punch him, give him a one-two in the head, and busted both of his hands while doing so. And then Bearcat just absolutely wrecked him afterwards. And Encyclopedia Brown says, busted your hand? You should have worn gloves. And Ike says, I did. Whoa. The 60s were wild. These kids are in middle school. It's ridiculous the things that they do. So Ike goes on to reveal that Bearcat is training for the Olympics in boxing. And Sally says, isn't he a little young? And Ike says, you tell him that. He hurt me when he breathed on me. Now that is a big mood for 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, your bonus point is back. You're fine. (laughs) Nice. Now let me do my Peter Griffin impression real quick. (laughs) So Ike says that Bugs refused to pay him the $2, saying that Ike didn't last long enough in the fight against Bearcat to earn the money. Big Spider-Man one energy. Yeah. You, you pinned him in three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ike says that it's a matter of pride. He says, Bearcat made me mad. Bearcat said that I fought like a girl. Now, Sally takes offense to this, and I'm very excited that a book so old is trying to break down these gender norms placed on it where fighting like a girl is an insult. Sally immediately stands up and says, oh, he did, did he? Stamps her foot and says, well, take the case. I'd love to teach Mr. Bearcat Meany how real girls fight. Now, for context, earlier in the series, Sally beat the absolute shit out of Bugs Meany, which is why he is terrified of her. She has beaten him up multiple times, and she is the strongest and prettiest girl in town, so she's the true hero of the series. The Ronda Rousey of Idaville. (laughs) Doesn't Ronda Rousey suck, though? Or is she pretending to suck because of WWE? I'm always very confused if she's bad or if her character is just a villain. The cyborg of... uh... Of India. Yeah, we'll go with that one. I, I can't pretend to be super knowledgeable about UFC, but I do remember Ronda Rousey at least winning a few fights and being also in the Entourage movie, which is disappointing that I remember that. She was in the Entourage movie. She was possibly the worst celebrity host of SNL ever. Oh, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> uh, very bad actor. But I do like the representation in these books, I have to say, from the mysteries we've talked about thus far. 30 of the 69 contestants nice. in the worm fiddling contests were women. Mm-hmm. And now we get to see Sally kick the shit out of a 10-year-old. So this is going to be... <laughs> You'll love to see it. It's great. So they go over to confront Bugs. When they show up, Bugs Meany hits him with a classic greeting. This guy is just very good at throwing insults when people come to confront him. He says, did you lose your way? The lady's sewing circle meets down the street. 
Mic drop. You gotta, you gotta have some stones to throw that out to someone who is like, just knock the ever-living shit out of you multiple times. I feel like Bugs Meanie has an entire legal pad of just, if this person says hi to me, I'll say this. If this person says hi to me, I'll say this. He's just constantly thinking about them in the shower and pre-rehearsing all of these arguments and sweet insults he's gonna throw at people. <laughs> so Sally says, we've come to get Ike's $2. And then Bugs replies with, Probably his best insult across the entire series thus far. Quote, you're a squirrel's idea of heaven. And when I first read this, it took me a minute, but I realized he's very elaborately calling her nuts, which maybe not the best thing, but I just like the wordplay of that. Not necessarily that calling someone nuts is something we should be doing, but the fact that he took it an A to B, B to C thing, squirrel's idea of heaven, squirrels like nuts, you're nuts, it's impressive. He's been hitting the books lately for those insults. Like when when Encyclopedia Brown was at the library figuring out the $2 bill mess, Bugs was off in the corner just like studying metaphors and, and <laughs> reading the dictionary to figure out what he's going to do as far as his next batch of insults. He's just got a thesaurus lined up. That's like the transitive property of insults right there. Like, okay, if, if so squirrels like nuts and I say that you're like, heaven for a squirrel. But that is actually a good idea. I think instead of using the term nuts, which is not a good term, it would be fun to be like, yo, that shit was acorns. (laughs) (laughs) I have given Adam a bonus point for referencing the transitive property because I love math. (laughs) So Bug says, I don't pay boys to fight like girls. And then Sally says, maybe you've forgotten how well a girl can fight. Shall I remind you? A great callback to, hey, remember the time I kicked the crap out of you? Bug says that he's too old to fight girls, but his cousin Bearcat is only 10, so he can do it. So Sally says, if I fight him, will you give Ike back his $2? And Bug says, of course. Am I not a man of my word? And certainly Bugs Meanie is not. Over the course of these nine books, we have well established that Bugs Meanie is not a man of his word, so I do not know why he would go to this questioning. What, are you calling me a liar? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. (laughs) What, are you calling me the town bully who tries to grift children out of money every single book? (laughs) So Bugs tosses a pair of boxing gloves at Encyclopedia Brown's feet and says that he's going to go into the Tiger's Clubhouse to go get Bearcat. While he's in the clubhouse, Encyclopedia Brown overhears him talking to Bearcat, and he says, quote, some fresh dame thinks she can make you eat dirt, Bearcat. Yeah, see, man. (laughs) (laughs) So Encyclopedia Brown is nervous, but he helps Sally put on her right boxing glove. Ike helps her put on her left boxing glove, and Bearcat comes out, and he seems like he doesn't really want to fight Sally, but Bugs keeps egging him on saying that Sally is challenging him and saying that he can't beat her up and Sally wants to fight and because Bearcat feels bad about fighting a girl, but Bugs keeps saying, no, 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 Sally wants this, it's okay. Not a great look for Bugs here. No, not a nice guy. Not at all. Eventually, Bearcat agrees and says, okay, cousin Bugs, if you say so, let's do this. And as Bearcat gets ready to fight, Encyclopedia Brown jumps in between and he says that he knows this whole thing is a setup and that Bugs put Ike up to this whole situation just so that Bugs could have someone beat up Sally to get revenge. So I turn to you two. How does Encyclopedia Brown know that all of this is a setup by Bugs, Meanie, and the Tigers? Right off the bat, I'm not sure if I picked up on any context clues that lets me know why exactly, besides the fact that kind of like you said, Bugs Meanie is just a serial grifter and a generally (laughs) like shithead person. Like it's like 
if your local grifter was trying to sell you snake oil, you're you're not going to suddenly decide, you know what, this time he's telling me the truth, folks. Yeah, these all sound like people from Ozark. <laughs> <laughs> Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me eight times. Maybe you're being nice this time. Maybe we don't trust people whose actual last name is Meanie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you saying that Bugs and Bearcat aren't on the up and up? <laughs> Do either of you have any sort of concrete guess, or are we just saying that Bugs Meanie's a piece of shit so we can't trust him as far as we can throw him? I mean, that first and foremost, that should be Encyclopedia's <laughs> business model. Like, number one, charge more. Number two, <laughs> no more business having to do with Bugs Meanie. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have an actual theory here. I was trying to come up with some sort of connection to the $2 bill, but I know it's a different character, so there's no there's no uh, interspersed storylines, I don't think. Now, just a constant worrisome about $2. To be fair, you can solve eight mysteries with that amount of money, so it is a lot of money. I mean, is it as simple as Ike or whoever the first guy's hand... Oh, I've got it. Ike helped Sally put on his glove. His hand doesn't actually hurt. Okay, Adam, do you have a guess? I really don't. I like that guess. I'm, I think I'm bowing out for this round. Well, you should like it because that's correct. Let's go. Wow. Very good, Kyle. The first thing that Ike says is that he his hands are too busted to get a quarter out of his own pocket, yet he's still able to lace up Sally's gloves. Wow. But Bugs's long game for that is trick Sally into fighting his 10-year-old younger cousin. He just wants to beat up Sally, and Bugs knows that Sally can kick the crap out of him, so he gets his cousin who is training for the Olympics in boxing to beat up Sally. And that's why they had Ike say things like, he told me I fought like a girl because he knew that that would make Sally upset. Wow. Really interesting long con. Mm -hmm. It's basically her version of the Marty McFly chicken thing. If you tell Sally that someone fought like a girl is a bad thing, she will fight you like a girl to prove it's a good thing. It had been kind of sick if after Encyclopedia explained why Bugs was lying, Sally then just went ahead and kicked the shit out of Bugs just for good measure. <laughs> so Kyle, you earned three points, which now brings the score to four to three in your favor as we get into our final mystery, the case of the headless runner. Before you get there, Mike, I just have to say a dream scenario would be she beats the shit out of him and then she uses her sewing kit to sew up his busted lip. <laughs> <laughs> Bearcat meanie low-key good guy for not really wanting to fight a girl. Points to him. Mm -hmm. And not even the fact that she's a girl, but just the fact that she didn't really do anything to him. And the only reason he ends up doing it is Bugs Meanie has to lie and say that Sally said mean things about Bearcat. <laughs> so we get into our final mystery, The Case of the Headless Runner. Now, I have chosen this one because it is the Encyclopedia Brown mystery that I remember the most from actually reading when I was in fifth grade. This is just whatever flashbulb moment happened. When I think of Encyclopedia Brown, this is the only case that I remember in vivid detail, so I had to pick it for this episode. Nice. nice. Let's do it. Because it's the season one finale, so how could I not? Encyclopedia Brown is riding home from the Globe Theater, which I can only assume it's the Globe Theater in England. They're riding the bus home from the Globe Theater where he was watching a horror film triple feature with Charlie Stewart, our favorite character who collects teeth oh, for fun. Was the horror film about Charlie Stewart? It was just a documentary, yeah. <laughs> so Encyclopedia Brown says that he wishes he had just stayed home and read books. At least I could have learned something useful that way. So Charlie says, quote, I was fine through The Headless Vampire and The Killer Gorilla, which is a movie I definitely want to see. 
But those floating hands in the torture chamber of Dr. Lafarge, ooh. Okay. That's Charlie trying to throw Encyclopedia off his scent as a future serial killer, 100%. (laughs) Like, Charlie was eating that shit up the whole movie. The other thing is, I know that the title of this movie is The Torture Chamber of Dr. Lafarge, but the fact that it's written in a way where the ooh comes right after, it makes me think that the title of the movie is... The Torture Chamber of Dr. Lafarge. Ooh, is the actual (laughs) name. That's the byline. (laughs) The Torture Chamber of Dr. Lafarge, colon. Ooh. (laughs) This summer, get ooed. (laughs) Get ooed. So they are scaring themselves in classic horror movie fashion where they just keep talking about the possibility of these fictional characters being real as they walk home. So they're off the bus at this point. They're walking home. And apparently from the movie, the floating hands would turn off lights before attacking, so Charlie is afraid that some light is going to go out and then they're going to get attacked on their walk home. Encyclopedia Brown, in a nice guy move, offers Charlie, hey, do you want to just sleep over at my place tonight so that we're not as scared, which is a great offer where Encyclopedia Brown is probably also scared, but is framing it as doing a favor for Charlie, which is a move that I can respect that I have certainly done similar things as a sixth grader. Or this is a super progressive book, and that's a move that he's trying to pull on his butt. (laughs) (laughs) So Charlie says, no, I'll be fine. I'll just head home. My house isn't too far from here. But then lightning crashes and thunder booms, and it starts to look very storming, so they run home even faster. But as they are heading home, Charlie hears something and asks Encyclopedia Brown if he heard it. He says that it sounded like glass breaking, and suddenly they see a porch light in front of someone's house go off. So Charlie is convinced that these are the floating hands, and they're doing their signature move of turning off lights before they attack people. Do you think if you collected teeth, you'd just have a little more, like, guts about you? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, you'd, you'd you'd be a little more, like, confident and, and not scared of things. Like, you have a you have a teeth collection. Yeah, you know, you would think. As they are looking at the porch, they then see a figure run towards them. And as it gets closer, they start to make out that it looks like a person. But instead, they see this human-like figure waving their arms wildly above their head. But as it gets even closer, they see it has no head. That's where the ooh comes from. Yes, exactly. The titular ooh. So this human of sorts gets closer to them and then eventually adjusts their shirt And it's revealed that it's Duke, one of the tigers. He was just wearing a sweater over his head. Normal behavior. I mean, it's the 60s, though. If you were to tell me that that was in fashion, I would be I would just go along with it. Or if it's just something you do for fun. Yeah, I just like to run around town with a sweater over my face. Again, you don't have video games or anything yet. Like it's either that or you go score worms. I don't even remember (laughs) what that was called anymore. Fiddling. (laughs) (laughs) The only options are worm fiddling and collecting teeth. (laughs) (laughs) So Duke says that he was reading by the window and he must have dozed off. The clap of thunder must have woken me up. And then Charlie says, so you ran down the street like a headless vampire? If I didn't have too much nerve, I would have been scared sick. Which is great because Charlie was scared sick. So I don't know who he's trying to fool here. Charlie's going to go home and put Duke on his kill list. (laughs) So... Duke says, what's this vampire jazz? I woke up and looked out the window. A bolt of lightning lit the street. 
and I saw two kids throwing rocks at Mr. Taft's store lights. That's the name of the guy whose house had the broken porch light. He says, they broke it. I grabbed a shirt and tried to catch them. So Encyclopedia Brown says, you chase them while putting on your shirt? Most kids take off their shirts when they fight. And Duke says, us tigers fight like gentlemen. You know, with your shirt on. (laughs) You know, with cable knit sweaters on. (laughs) (laughs) Because we like to be warm when we throw punches, because if you're not, that's how you pull a muscle. Duh, Encyclopedia. (laughs) So true. I'd also like to point out that vampire jazz is my favorite genre of music. Definitely. It's just the monster mash, but just with a bit more like in the background. So Encyclopedia Brown says, you'll lose to a tree someday if you keep putting on your shirt while you run. And then Duke says, not this shirt. It's a loose knit. I can see through it. Then Duke says, what are you two meatballs doing out at night? Breaking door lights, maybe? And Encyclopedia Brown says, good try, Duke, but you'll have to do a lot better. We're afraid that we saw you break the light. So... I turn to you two. How did Encyclopedia Brown know that Duke was lying about his story? Hmm. So Duke's reading by the window, mm-hmm. and he says the thunder woke him up. Says the thunder woke him up, then he saw a flash of lightning, and in the flash of lightning, he saw two kids throwing rocks at the porch light. So he ran out to the porch to try to stop them from doing so. Because Encyclopedia Brown is wondering, you just came from the porch where the light broke. What were you doing there? And his excuse is, I was chasing down the people who actually broke it. Yes, because the tigers are known for not being the breakers of things. They're they're the protectors of things. Right. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, as soon as Encyclopedia saw him, he was like, oh, he broke the light for sure. I just need to figure (laughs) it out. It, it wasn't like, uh, because of this, he broke the light. It's more of like, uh, because that's him, he definitely broke the light. I just need to figure out the cause. Yeah, I will say it's more of, he knows that Duke's story is full of crap. Less so than he knows definitively that he broke the light. He just knows that Duke's story isn't true. Man, is it something like he wouldn't have been able to see the light go out because of the lightning or something? The whole thunder and lightning thing has has the the wheels turning but i just can't seem to make anything hit okay i know i know why i know why it is okay if the thunder and lightning is what woke him up by the time he would have seen kids running away he wouldn't have been able to see them illuminated because they would have already broken the light Mm, so he has to be the one who broke the light okay lightning gets there before thunder light travels faster than sound so lightning precedes the thunder if the thunder woke him up that means the lightning already happened which means there would have been no chance for him to see anybody illuminated if they had already broken a light i will go ahead and concede a guess because that is better than anything i can contemplate in my own mind (laughs) (laughs) i will i will concede and hope he's wrong So I hate to let you know, Adam is correct. That is exactly what it is. He said that the thunder woke him up and then he saw the lightning. But what it really is, is lightning comes first, thunder comes second. So his story doesn't make any sense. Adam is 100% correct. My only guess is that Duke was a big fan of Amy Stewart's Knock on Wood, where the chorus goes, it's like thunder, lightning, the way you love me is frightening. And he thought that that was the order of operations. But really, (laughs) it goes lightning and then thunder. Not loving you is a blunder is my remix to Knock on Wood by Amy Stewart. (laughs) But yeah, Adam, you earned the three points for getting that correct, meaning that you have won this episode, the season one finale of Meddling Adults, a come from behind last 
mystery victory. You won in the bottom of the ninth inning of this minor league baseball game. Uh, so <laughs> Never count out the Murder Hornets. Yeah, you win a free Idaville Murder Hornets t-shirt jersey. <laughs> if that jersey doesn't have Finkelfooter on the back, I'm sending it right back to you. <laughs> so Adam, you have earned money for the Black Women's Health Imperative. How does it feel? It feels great. I would have been okay with anybody's charity getting money, but uh, it's always good to win. That's true. Kyle, <laughs> you fought valiantly. It was a close one. We still had a very good time. Don't feel bad about your effort. It was it was tight. Adam just barely edged it out in the end there. I got one right, and I learned about the joys of worm fiddling, so I, I'm going to call that a win in my heart. Pretty much. We're all winners because now we're more familiar with worm fiddling. So... Adam and Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you guys doing stuff on the internet in the podcast world, where can they do so? I defer to the winner first. <laughs> um, you can find me at Adam Mamawala on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Adam is spelled like Adam. And uh, Ma- <laughs> Mamawala, you'll see it written, but it's M-A-M-A-W-A-L-A. I am also the co-host of Horse Hoops with Woo. yours truly, Mike Schubert, and Away Games Podcast. You can follow us at Away Games Pod. It is a Cubs and baseball podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. Kyle spelled the way it sounds. Uh, <laughs> Banduho, B-A-N-D-U-J-O. You can catch me every week on Big Screen Sports, which is a sports movie podcast. All episodes are evergreen, including the, the three that I have had Mike on. We have talked Quidditch and musicals and acapella it's been a strange mix mm-hmm. you know when you when you think of sports movies <laughs> you think you think harry potter high school musical and pitch perfect the big three the all-time the mount rushmore of sports movies right there <laughs> oh man we need a new phrase for mount rushmore now we need a new what's a new thing that has four on it <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true it's the torn down statues of sports movies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can uh, you can catch me on there at Big Screen Sports every week. And then for any baseball fans, you can catch my interview series from Phenom to the Farm presented by uh, the lovely folks over at Baseball America that comes out every other Tuesday. Just an interview series talking to current and former pro baseball players about their experiences through the minors. So yeah, check that out. Yes, definitely check those out. And I'm remembering that the mountain before it became Mount Rushmore was called the Six Grandfathers. So what we should do is instead of picking top fours of things, we should pick top sixes of things and just say it's the Six Grandfathers of whatever. Look, there we go. Bing, bang, boom. We solved it. What are your Six Grandfather Worm Fiddlers all time? <sighs> okay, um... <laughs> Ambrose Vining is number one for sure. I'm really, I'm really more of a Justin's mom kind of guy. <laughs> the good thing about Justin's mom is that the solution manual says that after she heard what Justin did, she gave her trophy and the prize to Ambrose because she was absolutely disgusted with what her son did to help her win. Wow. It's really interesting that he went through those lengths to help his mom. He's a mama's boy, you know? That, yeah, that's uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, Adam and Kyle, thank you so much for joining on. Listeners, thanks for listening. And, you know, you, you didn't necessarily get all of these mysteries correct. They were a little bit tricky, but that's just what happens when instead of 11-year-old super detectives, you get a couple of meddling adults. Hey. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode in this season of Meddling Adults. Meddling Adults is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. It's co-produced by Multitude. Today's episode was edited by Percy of Berlin. The music is by Bettina Kambamanas. The art is by Ma'ayan Atias. And the web design is by me and Kelly Schubert. This first season of Meddling Adults and the donations that we're making to the winning charities would not have been possible without all of our patrons, especially those at the highest tier, which includes Veronica Bartova, Lada Bartova, Danielle Guibolt, That Meddling Moster, Don't Call Me Ninfedora, Salvatore Testa, Polly Burridge, Yogan Shanley, Matthew Babbitt, Haley Hastings, Andrea Kaplan, and Natanya Page. I'm not quite sure yet how long the break will be between seasons. I don't think it will be very long, and I'll continue to post updates on this feed during the break, such as how much money we were able to raise and when season two is going to release. If you want to contribute to the funds given out to charity, it's not too late. You can do that at patreon.com slash meddlingadults. All money after expenses goes directly to the charities, and if you just want to make a one-time donation, you can go to paypal.me slash meddlingadults. If you want to follow the show on social media, you can find it at meddlingadults on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and reddit.com slash r slash meddlingadults. And for for more information about the show, you can go to meddlingadults.com. If you want to tell someone about the show, you think of someone that might like it, shoot them a text, let them know. It's the perfect time to listen because season one is done. They can binge it all. Or if you'd like, you can leave a rating and review online. Thank you so much for listening to this first season. I'm ecstatic with how successful it was, and I'm so excited for what the future of meddling adults holds. I'll see you next time on this feed when we have an update about what's going on.